Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy All right. Well, in case you are new here, the way that we roll at DPC is that we work our way through books of the Bible, uh, going verse by verse, and we find ourselves in Zechariah 9 this morning. We had Francois here last week, which was awesome, uh, and the week before that we were in Zechariah 8, so here we are in Zechariah 9. Uh, just a little quick note on the context of this. Uh, so Zechariah was uh, one of the prophets uh, that God had appointed to speak to his people, and uh, he ministered during what we call the post-exilic period. So this was a time when the people of Israel had been sent away for uh, several decades to Babylon, and then had been given permission to come home. And so Zechariah was living and working with these people, and he was largely concerned with rebuilding the temple. That's a lot of what we've heard about so far. Well, chapter 9 is actually is a bit of a change in the tone of the book here. See, Zechariah 9, is, uh, scholars actually think that it was written about 480 B.C., and so this would have placed it about 40 years after all of the other things that we've heard so far. So now we see that Zechariah is turning his attention as a seasoned prophet and no longer a young man, now he's looking towards the future. And I think this had been really encouraging for the people uh, because, you know, their life had been uh, really focused on this one big goal of rebuilding the temple. They, they'd gotten out of uh, exile, they'd come home, and then they'd spend all this time and energy working on the temple, and that got finished, and then I think they would have been looking around and going, well, now what? What are we going to do now? So 40 years later, Zechariah is turning his attention towards the future, and we see that God is still encouraging his people. He's encouraging his people that he's sovereign, uh, that he's sovereign over people. He's sovereign over the nations that surround them. And really, he's sovereign over the past, the present, and the future. Uh, I don't really have like three-point sermon for you this morning. I don't, it's not cut and dry like that. But I do have two questions that I think that we should kind of keep in mind as as we are exploring this passage this morning. The first question is this. Is God absent or is he out of control? Is this world spinning out of his control? And the second question is that if, it's, if he's not absent, if, he's not, if the things are not out of his control, does he care? Is he indifferent? Is God indifferent? So two questions. Is God absent or is God indifferent? So let's jump in. Zechariah 9 verse 1 says this, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. Let's pause there for a second. So, oracle. This word oracle 
is a Hebrew word for Masah, and really that word means burden. Masah means burden. And so what we see right away is that <clears throat> this message that Zechariah has is so much more than just a little encouragement card that was dropped in the mail to the people. You know, it wasn't just a little note. This is a heavy thing that God has placed in Zechariah's heart. It's weighty. Uh, this would be something that Zechariah would feel compelled to speak. Regardless of how he actually felt about the words, he wouldn't be able to stop himself from speaking them. There'd be a sense of urgency or maybe even dread accompanying a burden like this. This is the burden that was given to Zechariah the prophet. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered why anybody took some of these prophets seriously? Like, uh, you know, their words, their words seem to be full of unpleasant and heavy things oftentimes. Um, not always super encouraging, sometimes encouraging, but often kind of scary. Uh, and I don't know what you guys are like, but for me, when I'm presented with an unpleasant reality, like for instance, if Lonnie goes running errands and she comes home and she tells me that the van is running strange or perhaps she was doing the laundry and uh, she says, hey, Connor, there's like some water dripping out from behind the, the, the washing machine. My reaction is almost always, mm, you'll probably be fine, right? <laughs> That's, that's always where I go first, which is maybe not a good life strategy, but I don't think I'm alone. You know, there's, uh, at least in the Bible, there's loads of stories of like people like Ahab, the king. There's all these kings that surrounded themselves with people that said things that they liked. You know, even, I think it was Hezekiah, you know, at, he was a good king, and even at the end of his life, you know, God said, hey, you got to do all these things, and he looked at his life and said, well, that's not going to happen in my lifetime. It's probably Okay. So I was wondering about this, you know, like just regardless of, you know, how mature you may be when it comes to bad news, probably more mature than me, um, I think that when we get presented with bad news, our first thing that we want to know is how legitimate is the source that the news is coming from? Is it worth listening to this person? How do you know if the person is legitimate? Well, in the case of prophets, God actually gave the people of Israel a little mechanism for telling whether or not prophets worth listening to. Deuteronomy 18.22 says this, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. And I think you can even see in the, in the book of Acts, there's a story where the disciples are uh, in trouble again with the, the religious leaders, and the religious leaders have got together, and they're figuring out what they're going to do. Are they going to kill these guys or throw them in jail? Maybe they just call them names. They're not sure. And one of their leaders, Gamaliel, who's a really wise guy, he says to them, no, 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 no. If what these people are saying is of God, if this is really what God wants, if we stand in their way, we're going to be standing in the way of God. That's a bad idea. But if it's not of God, then they're just going to go the way of all these other crazy people that said that they were speaking on God's behalf in the past, and we don't need to worry about it. In other words, let's just wait and see. Maybe it'll be fine. See, I'm not so alone. <laughs> But don't you think this is a little bit curious? This is curious logic. It's a little strange. Because oftentimes, you know, when we read the Bible, the things that the prophets predict didn't come true immediately. It's not like you can wait and see, and then tomorrow you'll have an answer. In fact, we see here Zechariah 9, the beginnings of the first glimmers of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Zechariah is speaking actually took almost 150 years to come to pass. So they wouldn't have known for 150 years. Everybody hearing those words would have likely been dead. They wouldn't have known. 
I think this tells us two things, actually, about God's prophecies. First of all, you know, for those hearing in real time, and this is the obvious one, if you're hearing the Word of God in real time, well, that Word of God serves as a, a warning or um, maybe just an encouragement to prepare for something that's going to happen. Maybe it's uh, just an encouragement to repent. You know, it, it gives you uh, a chance to prepare yourself for what was about to come. But I think the thing that we miss more about this is that actually that word of the Lord, it stands for all time. And for those who are 150 years in the future, who are actually living and experiencing the prophetic reality that was shared all those years ago, it would actually serve as proof for those people that God is actually in the circumstances that they find themselves in. And if God is in the circumstances, then it serves as proof that those circumstances are happening for a reason and that God is actually ultimately in control of the people's situations. It would be really encouraging. It's encouraging for those who are looking back. I think it's encouraging. Let's carry on. Verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to read here. So, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So the first thing I notice in these first four verses is a big list, uh, a list of a bunch of Bible names. And when I hear lists of almost anything, uh, it's not usually good for me. My brain starts to kind of just turn it off, uh, especially... You know, when we, when we talk about maybe like driving directions, for instance. So nowadays I use my phone, which is really helpful because it gives me one direction at a time. You know, as I'm driving somewhere, it will tell me, turn here, turn there. In the old days, though, before I had a phone, if I wanted directions somewhere, I would have to go to a gas station, say, and I'd pull over and I'd get out and I'd want to go to the swimming hole. I'd talk to the gas station attendant and say, hey, where's this swimming hole? And they go, that's a great place. You're going to love it there. First you turn right, then you go to the end of the street, there's a T, and at this point, my brain, I wish I could say that my brain started thinking about other things, you know, important, productive things at least, but actually my brain just turns off. It just stops. It goes blank. And I don't even realize that I've stopped listening to what's happening until he says, and that's how you get there. And then I go, that's great. Thanks. I get back in the car, and I turn, and then I wait till he can't see me anymore, and I pull over somewhere else, and I get Lonnie to get the directions. That's the way I do it. So lists are not good for me. So we have a list of a bunch of names that sound Bible-y. That's the way it is. We got Hamak, Hadrach, all these things. So I got a map. There's a map that I'm going to show up here. So <clears throat> three of the cities are on this map, Tyre, Sidon, Damascus. They're all north of Jerusalem. The other two cities that are listed are Hamath and Hadrach. Uh, Hadrach especially, people don't really know very much about it. I think it's only even listed in the Bible, maybe in one other place, and the history books don't talk about it very much. But it's connected to Damascus. And the big thing to notice about these cities is actually they were, especially Hadrath and Damascus, these were outside of the bounds of either David or Solomon's kingdom. So right away God is talking about uh, showing that he's sovereign over the whole earth. He's sovereign beyond the realms that the Israelites in their best years ever experienced. He's sovereign beyond it and he has dominion over the pagan people. These cities, they were all powerful, and to varying degrees, they show up in the story of Israel as kind of thorns in their side. But Tyre was actually a pretty special city. 
for the people of the time. It, it took Assyria five years to subdue Tyre. Babylon besieged it for 13 years before they gave up and, and just settled for some tribute. But then Alexander the Great comes along. We're going to hear a lot about him this morning. And in 332 BC, Alexander the Great conquered it in seven months. You see, with Alexander, actually, we, this is where we start to see uh, that the, the, the prophecies that Zechariah was speaking were literally coming true. This section of scripture, actually, many scholars think that this actually foretells the coming of Alexander, literally. And in fact, the cities that were listed was the route that he took into the region. I'm going to read this quickly here. This is pretty cool. It says, Alexander's siege of Tyre is worth elaboration. At one time, the city stood on the mainland, but in order to ensure Tyre's greater safety, a new city had been constructed on an island located about a half a mile offshore. This island was surrounded by a double wall 150 feet high that was filled in with 25 feet of earth. This wall plus the surrounding sea seemed to make the city impregnable. Tyre prospered from this secure position. Thus, when the armies of Alexander appeared on the shore, she felt she could easily defy the invasion. After all, Tyre had withstood a five-year siege by the Assyrians and a 13-year siege by the Babylonians. Surely she could defy Alexander. Well, Alexander took the city in just seven months. At incredible effort, he had his armies fill in the half-mile channel to the island, using stones, timber, and other material from the remains of the old city on the shore. This tire was literally scraped flat, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel, who had said, They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will make you a bare rock, and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt." Now, if you go to Lebanon today, uh, you can still find the city of Tyre. But the point here is that actually after Alexander came through, Tyre never again enjoyed a sense of importance and political power that it had before he came along. You know, for the Jewish people that were hearing this about Tyre getting tearing apart, it would have been uh, unthinkable. It would have been crazy because Tyre was so impressive to the people around them. But 150 years later, we see literal historical proof that backs up everything that Zechariah was saying. But, you know, it's more than that. It's more than just this parlor trick of being able to tell the future exactly. It's not like God was saying, you're going to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger next week. You know, it's not a literal telling of the future for its own sake. You see, when we survey the arc of human history, it's clear that Alexander's conquests actually helped prepare the world for the coming of Christ. See, Alexander built Greek cities everywhere. He encouraged his soldiers to marry women from the conquered nations. He spread his culture and his language everywhere. And in doing all that, he actually unified the whole world. And then when the Romans came along, the Romans took over that perfect empire, prepared for them completely, they added law, roads, government, and suddenly the world was completely ripe for the early church to spread the gospel. It couldn't have happened in an easier time for them. I mean, it wasn't easy for Christians in the early years, but the spread of the gospel was easy. See, God has plans. He doesn't just know what's going to happen. He understands what's happening, and he's bending it to his will. He has a plan. It might take 150 years to start to see things from his perspective, but we can trust that there is a plan in place. Maybe you've heard someone ask a question like this, or maybe you've asked it yourself. I know that I have. 
If God is good and if God is really there, then why do terrible things happen? Why is the world the way it is? And you know, the Jewish people ask these questions all the time. Prophet Jeremiah said it in this. I like this. He says, God, you are always righteous. When I bring a case before you, you're always righteous. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. He doesn't understand. He says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow, they bear fruit. You're always on their lips, but you're far from their hearts. Or Job, he said it like this, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Or the psalmist in Psalm 73, he said this, but as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and so strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride. They wear it like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff. They speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush other people. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut through the earth. And so people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Lord Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. God, do you have a plan? What is going on? You have to explain yourself. See, the Jews must have looked at the season of history that they had just experienced, their exile. They came out of their exile. They became obedient. They rebuilt the temple. And, you know, with that would have come a return to faithfulness, you know, to doing religion the proper way. And yet they would have looked around and they would have seen a city like Tyre that so blatantly lived in opposition to God, stack up so much wealth, while they seem to just continue to face calamity after calamity. God is anything but absent, though. He's certainly not out of control. He's always watching. Right at the beginning of this passage, verse 1, the second half of it says this, For the Lord has an eye on mankind. God sees everything. So, you know, what this tells me this, it tells me this, is, it tells me that we can't measure our experiences here on this planet with the world's measuring tape. We can't do it. Our metrics for success need to be different than the way the world measures success. The way that we value things, even big things like health and happiness, which seem to be like two of the pinnacles of human experience if we look around the world, they need to be different. We need to place them in a different order, a different priority order than the way the world does. Paul talked about it in Colossians 3. He says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. You died to the right to have the wealth of this world. Your real wealth is hidden with Christ in God. You died to happiness in this life, and happiness is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Or in Philippians, he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul was using a different measuring tape, clearly. So this maybe begs this question. Maybe you can agree with me. Okay, so God is not absent. God is in control. But if God is not absent and he's in control and the world still looks like this, maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he's indifferent then, which is worse. That's worse than absent. 
But you need to know this. God doesn't just let all of that stuff go, all the terrible, broken things that happen on this planet. He doesn't let it just go. Pain, heartbreak, these things. There's a, there's a passage in Deuteronomy. Moses, who the Bible says was a friend of God, and he knew God well. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 32.4. He said about God that God is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. We can trust that God will be just and faithful. Even if it doesn't make sense right now, we can trust that he will move. We just need to know that it will be in his time, and sometimes God's timing is not like our timing. Have you ever noticed that? Things don't happen as fast as we might like them to. We don't get the answer that we would want. I think it's important to know this. Our perspective, the way that we see the world, is, it, it's tied to this moment right now. And I think it's pretty common for most of us people, most of us humans, for us to put ourselves at the center of that moment. Like if you think back on your life, the course of your life, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, if you think about all the profound moments that have happened in life, you know, whether they're good or bad, the things that shape us, you know, we tend to think about them, and if you, if you were to look at it like a movie, you know, we would be the central character. The whole world happens around us, because of us, for us, to us, happens with us in the middle of it. Or if we look at our future, if we think about our future and our plans, you know, whether you're in high school and maybe you're going to graduate, or your career plans, your plans for retirement, for grandkids, even our funeral, we're still looking at it with ourselves at the center of the story. But if we take a minute and we think about God for a second, we try and think about the beginning of God, we can think about the beginning of us, but the beginning of God doesn't exist. There is no beginning. He's the Alpha, and we don't know when he's going to end. There is no end. There's no end at all. Alpha, Omega, God is like this. We are like this. When we put those two things beside each other, we start to get a little bit of a different perspective. Sometimes it'll take 150 years for something to start to make sense that we're experiencing right now. See, God is not indifferent, and he's not uninterested in us personally. Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Luke. He says, what is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Two pennies? Yet God doesn't forget a single one of those sparrows. And the very hairs on your head, and your head, and your head, and your head, he knows them all. They're numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. See, it is so important that we orient ourselves properly to remember that as much as it may feel like we are all individually the center character in the story, we're really not. Just each and every one of us, we're just merely supporting characters. We're pilgrims that are here for a time orbiting the story of Jesus. God is not absent and God is not indifferent Let's carry on, verse 5. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. More names. I can have another list. I have another map. So... <clears throat> We see here, these cities, now the other cities were all north of Jerusalem. These ones are to the west and to the south. And these cities 
These are listed as four of the five main Philistine cities. Gath wasn't listed, but scholars think that Gath probably was irrelevant by the time that Zechariah was working. But again, we see God just exclaiming his sovereignty over the surrounding nations, the neighboring nations. But we start to see something change a little bit here as well. Not only is God expressing his sovereignty and his dominance over the neighbors, we actually start to see that God's heart for all people is going to start to shine through too. It's not just, I'm going to kill everybody but you. Verse 7, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. You know what this means? It means there will be no more idol worship. No more child sacrifice. No more eating unclean food. No more shrine prostitution. God will take away the evil of the people. He will purify the people. And God will be left with a remnant. This is a remnant of people that that didn't start out as God's people, but they became just like God's people. This is us. It's people like us are the ones that this passage is talking about. Paul says it in Romans 11. He says, Some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, they've been broken off. And you Gentiles, who are branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. This is actually pretty cool. I don't know how maybe you guys know this or not, but in our church we have people from all kinds of places that are calling this church home these days. We have people from Africa. We have people from Mexico. We have people from Brazil. We have people from Europe. We have people from Asia. There's all kinds of people and we've all been grafted into the same family. You know, none of us, unless you are a Jewish person, uh, none of us were part of the original plan, but we've been grafted in. We are the people that God made a remnant, or made into a remnant that he could absorb into his people. You see, that question, is God indifferent? Well, 2,500 years ago, give or take, when Zechariah and God were having a chat, God thought about us. When he was talking with Zechariah, he was thinking of us. So no, God is not indifferent. In verse 8, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. If we pick up that historical thread again of Alexander, it's interesting to note if you study the the, the conquest of Alexander uh, through this this region, he left Jerusalem alone. There's not really a, a, a strong historical reason for it. Nobody really knows why. But he left Jerusalem alone, despite sacking every other city. Uh, and there's actually there's a historian named Josephus who writes about it, although people are not sure how, how trustworthy he is all the time in his accuracy. But he talks about it. And really, the thing that we can take away from that is that the only reason is God. It must be. God says it right here. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So God is there. And it's the only reason. You know, why else? Alexander was conquering the whole region, and he left Jerusalem standing when he conquered every other place, flattened them. God was in control. This verse also makes me think about something else, too. Um, I love worship. Uh, You know, as long as I've been... You know, played guitar since I was 13 or 14 years old. 
you know, I've, from that time, I've been engaged in playing worship at church. Uh, I love singing together. I love worship. Um, and, you know, over the years, as I've reflected on worship, you know, I've come to the realization that worship is actually, it's a lot more than music. I love music. It's a big part of the way that I express myself as a person and connect with God. Um, and I think it's really important when we sing together. It's, it's a huge part of what worship is, but worship is not just the singing together. See, what I think in its essence is, worship is when we uh, carve out some space intentionally in our life. And we carve out that space to turn our attention fully to God in those moments. And I think we can do that at church on a Sunday morning, but I think we can also do it when we go for a walk in the woods. We can do it in other places too. But it's that intentionality where we, we carve space and we say, God, this space is for you. Show me who you are. I need to see who you are. I need to know you. I want you to change me. Speak to me. That's, that's what, in essence, that's what the essence of worship is. And it's about God. You know, it's about us giving our glory and our praise to him. So I think there's something really interesting here in verse 8. It's, it talks about God encamping at his house as a guard. You know, God's house is often referred to as the temple. And in Jerusalem, that, the temple was God's house. And, and that's, that's where the center of worship was happening. So I think we can make this correlation that if you need a little bit of protection, if you need to see God... We've been talking about orienting perspective. If you need to reorient your perspective, maybe this world is sucking you into its way of seeing things a little too much. I think the best way to reorient that is to go to the place where worship happens because that's where God is. So that could be Sunday morning or it could be your quiet times. We got to do that. We got to carve that time out because we can't change our perspective on our own. We can't... um, just force ourselves to feel differently than we do. We need somebody to come and help us. And so that's what is great about worship. Now we're going to come to the best part of the scripture. Verse 9. <clears throat> Verse 9 is where we, we find the meat to the answer to the question, is God indifferent? See, up to this point, we've been watching God dominate human history and bend nations to his will, but he's not content to only just do that. You see, his heart is to absorb people into his life and into his kingdom. And we see now that he's going to give Zechariah a little glimpse at what his ultimate solution is, what God's ultimate solution for humans is. And verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does this sound familiar? Let's read it in Luke, in Luke 19. As he came to the towns, Jesus came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany. On the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there. He told them, as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Aren't you glad you don't get given errands like that? Like, go steal that car. And if somebody says, hey, what are you doing with that car? Just tell them the Lord needs it. See how far that gets you. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, hey, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. And then they could relax because they realized that they weren't going to get arrested. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. 
And as Jesus rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that they had seen, blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in highest heaven. Verse 9 again from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. For Zechariah, the king was coming. But for us, we actually see that Jesus is that king and, and Jesus has come. In case you're new or maybe you're unsure about what the big deal is about Jesus, listen to this. It describes this coming king. It describes Jesus. It describes him like this, as righteous, as having salvation, as humble. Let's talk about righteousness first of all. Righteousness is not a uh, passive quality. It's not like being pretty or strong or a shape being square. Righteousness basically means you do the right things. And it would suggest that you do the right things always. If you're righteous, you are someone thing that does right things always. So if you think about this in terms of a king, this is a king who, in the halls of power, in the, in, in the courts, justice does the right thing. In government, he does the right thing. In relationships, he's a king that does the right thing. In communities, he's a king that does the right thing. In the environment, in the economy, it's a king that will do the right thing. And he has salvation. And salvation is a Christian word. Uh, or It's a word that comes up in church an awful lot anyway. If you don't know about salvation, you need to understand this. There's two things that make this world terrible. Uh, sin and death. If we had no sin and we had no death, it wouldn't be so bad here. This would be heaven, really. But sin and death. And, and what it means when it says that this king comes having salvation, it means that he has defeated the power, the ultimate power that death has over us, and he's fulfilled the requirements and the, and, the, and the demand that sin places on us. So he conquers sin and he conquers death. He's righteous and he's humble. And this is amazing. You know, this king who has salvation, has conquered sin and death, the two major problems for all of us who's righteous, who does the right thing always, is humble. He's approachable. We can go to our king. We can go to this king freely. He's humble. And there's actually a fourth thing that is referenced here too, although not explicitly. Uh, I always read the riding on a donkey part as proof of the humility. Uh, but in my readings, I discovered actually in the ancient world uh, of the time, uh, a donkey was actually the mount of a prince or a king. Uh, but they would ride it in a time of peace. They would ride a horse when they had to go to war. But when they were riding in times of peace, they would ride a donkey. So we see this righteous king, this salvation-bringing king, this humble king who's also the bringer of peace. He brings peace to where there's strife and uh, friction. He's a bringer of peace. See, Alexander was great. But Jesus, he's better. And the contrast is really profound. Uh, there's one of those amazing little coincidental details that crop up in, in, in the story of 
that God is telling throughout eternity, which is pretty cool. And it's, and it's only something that God could have orchestrated. It's this. At the age of 33, Alexander rode upon his mighty steed, Bucephalus, surrounded by soldiers whose shields were shining, whose spears were glistening. He conquered the known world at the age of 33. There's a different king. Zion's king, also at 33, came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He had no need for a war horse. He brought peace. Jesus. See, in the light of Jesus, Alexander, who, when we use the world's measuring tape, we measure him, we could rate him as great. Alexander was great. But in the light of Jesus, Alexander is actually just reduced to a simple tool in the hand of God, like a really good shovel or a supercomputer or a plunger. <laughs> so if you feel like this world is, is out of control, that God's maybe absent, or that he has no idea about your situation, he doesn't understand, you can take heart. That there's nothing that happens on this planet, in this universe, that's outside of his sight or beyond his control. And, and again, this is not passive awareness. It's not just impressive that God sees everything. Romans 8.28 says that God is working all things together for good. So we can trust that even if what we're experiencing right now doesn't make sense to us, we can trust that maybe in 150 years it might. And that's hard. It's not easy, but we know that he's good. And we know that the things that don't make sense to us right now make sense to a God that knows what's going on and that loves us very much. See, maybe you feel like God is indifferent He's not. We just talked about this an awful lot. The same God who holds the universe in his hand, he sees every sparrow fall. The same God that is working on this global stage, that he's bending all of human history to his will and for his glory, he's made a way for us. He thought about us 2,500 years ago. He thought about us. He thought about the people that are going to come after us. He made a way for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. And so I said a little while ago about worship being a great place to find a reorientation of our perspective. We're actually going to get the worship team to come on back up. Uh, and we're going to sing together one more time. And let's just keep that in mind that, that the Jesus that we sing about is the Jesus that God was talking to Zechariah about. Uh, He's his plan. He's God's plan for fixing this place, for bringing all things together for good. So we're going to sing together about Jesus, and we're going to turn our eyes to Jesus and look full in his wonderful face this morning, and uh, hopefully we will reorient our perspectives just a little bit. If uh, you'd like prayer... Uh, I'll be up here at the front and I'd love to pray with you. Or if you just want to sing and, and reflect on Jesus, that's welcome too. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or 
find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.